again, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're talking about holiness, both in the Christian life and in the books we write. You don't seem to hear a lot about holiness these days, though it is certainly still out there. But what is it? Why is it important? For authors, we've talked about the content of our books and our audiences, but how do we mesh the two and define ourselves as Christian writers? Should we define ourselves that way? Answers to these and more coming right up. So I'm going to get a little bit raw and real with you guys this week. I hope that's okay, because if it's not, you can't tell me no, since we're not live. And I hope you don't switch off of this. Had really a bad day earlier this week. Actually, my wife and I kind of both individually had our own bad days. And of course, living together like that, and then with a very small child, when both of you kind of have a bad day, it's... uh it ends up not well. And so it was really, it was, it was rough. Um, some things happened kind of earlier in the morning and that I handled certainly very badly and spent much of the rest of the day just not in a good place. It's kind of interesting how things happen sometimes. You know, I'd already started working on this episode, scripting it. And so I had written most of the devotional portion of it on Monday. Tuesday comes along and all this stuff happens. And made me question a lot of things about myself. I had to face kind of a hard truth, a realization about myself and, you know, a place I was at and kind of still am. And that's, that's part of the issue is that by the end of the day, Tuesday, things were kind of okay. I was still feeling really not well. Wednesday, still kind of in a bit of doubt and wonder and I guess kind of fear of, you know, given what had happened the day before, where I was personally and spiritually with things. And it was interesting because later that day on Wednesday, uh, my wife and I were out taking a walk and she was just talking about, you know, the, the things she had gone through the previous day. And she said that, you know, sometimes pressure comes on you and when the pressure's on, things come out of you that you may or may not like that might be ugly I think she said but then once it comes out you've got to deal with it you've got to accept okay this you know this is something I do under pressure it may be something I do under extreme pressure and if you don't like it then you've got to deal with it if it's not you know if it's not the way God would have you live then you've got to deal with it and I don't think she realized it spoke right into kind of what I was dealing with a bit there so it kind of Screwed up a lot of things in my schedule. I uh, was able to still get the trail in our backyard done. Because uh, that's something, you know, hard physical labor is easy to do even when you're upset. Sometimes it's even a good thing to do. But I uh, haven't written as much this week as I wanted to. haven't done much in promoting book three, which by the time you hear this, it's going to be coming out on Thursday, the 21st of May. You can pre-order the ebook version right now. Or you can wait until the 21st and order the trade paperback version. I've heard from a couple people who are doing that. But anyway, so I didn't get as much writing done. And so between not getting as much done last week, I did do a little bit this week, but not a whole lot so far. I'm recording this Thursday night. So I still, I kept my original word count goals in there because, you know, it's very possible that I'll be able to come back and write more than, you know, the daily goal and get caught back up. So for now, I'm going to keep keep my weekly word count goal where it was and see if I can kind of catch up in the next couple weeks or so. But I want to share that with you because the, 
you know, the topic that we're going to be discussing in a minute here is not an easy topic. And I'm not coming at this as someone, uh, as Paul would say, I do not consider myself to have attained it. But one thing I do, I press on to grasp hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And so, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with these devotionals, especially, is to get away from, I don't want to say the emotional aspect of it. I believe God gave us emotions for a reason, but it's what I've seen a lot happen is that we begin to water down scripture and to soften the words of the Bible because we don't see humans being able to live up to this impossible standard. But I think that's kind of the point. And as we get into this topic, I think we'll you'll get to see that a bit. And so I haven't made it yet, for sure. There's definitely still some things I'm dealing with. And I've said, I don't know if I've ever said it on the podcast, but I say it to myself and to people I know quite a bit that, you know, I know there's going to be things that in the future I don't realize are a sin yet, but I'm, but God will bring it to my mind that it is. And then I'm going to be responsible to deal with it. And this was, you know, definitely an opportunity to, to do that. And I'm still working through it a little bit. So anyway, as I go through this topic, don't think this is someone who has made it, who is perfect, who's coming at you with this, but I believe it is what scripture says. And it's something we should put our sights on and put our ideals into that. This is what we should be pursuing and some things that we should definitely be thinking about. And then hopefully next week, I'll have a better update on the writing world. And so, as I mentioned in the interim update last Saturday, my wife and I had been talking around this topic of holiness a couple weeks ago, and which is what inspired this episode. And it's interesting because we don't hear the word holiness much these days, outside of maybe a few worship songs about the holiness of God. Now, this topic and idea is still out there, but much like my wife's and my conversations, we tend to talk around the topic without necessarily actually hitting on the topic. So what is holiness? Let's start today with a few definitions and ideas to help avoid confusion as we go. The main distinction I want to make in defining these things is to understand the difference between righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is right standing. To understand this, think about a person you know or someone that's just kind of in your life one way or another. It might be a family member or a relative. It might just be a neighbor down the street that you don't even really know, maybe a coworker, but someone who has wronged you somehow. Maybe they promised to do something and they didn't do it, or they don't act the way you think they should, or maybe they throw loud parties at odd hours so it's hard for you to sleep. But I want you to think of this person, someone that when you hear their name or see them on the street or at the job place, your immediate reaction is a negative one. Now, it might be as strong as something as hate. I hope it isn't, but it might be, or even just a severe distrust, which might be rightfully earned. I'm not trying to say anything against that. Or it might be as subtle as your first mental reaction being, oh, before coming to Christ, this is how we are to God. He still loves us and he wants to see us be who he created us to be, but we're unrighteous. We don't have right standing. Now imagine that same person that you currently have the negative reaction to, And whatever is the cause of that negative reaction, it's been removed. Either they've apologized, they've proven themselves to be trustful, they've acknowledged your need to sleep, and they have stopped throwing loud parties at odd hours. Whatever it is that in your mind they would need to do, and we're not going to worry about discussing that right now because that's going to take entirely too long, but whatever the reason, now when you hear their name or see them on the street or in the office, your mental reaction is, oh, 
You look forward to talking to them or spending time with them. We would say that they now have right standing with you. That in regards to the human relationship, they are righteous. Now, people can be a selfish and petty lot, and our reason for not thinking positively about a person might not be influenced by any actual spiritual sin. But understand that God's requirements for righteousness are so perfect and so exacting that we, sometimes petty, sometimes selfish human beings, cannot earn our own righteousness. And that's why Christ had to die on the cross. Now, because of Christ's obedience and sacrifice, we were given his righteousness, his right standing with God, to claim as our own so we can stand before God. We find this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the verse says, might become, because the choice is still ours to make, to accept that sacrifice, and stop trying to earn our righteousness through what we do. Now, where we start to make a mistake, though, is to conflate or consider as one and the same righteousness and holiness, to think that our holiness comes from Christ as well. It doesn't. What is holiness, then? It means to set apart for special use. Now, we might have been able to use fine china once upon a time as an example, but I don't know how many people still have that. Instead, to make it a little more relevant to today, think of something. It could be something as simple as a particular outfit or maybe even a food. Maybe you only eat tacos on Tuesday and never at any other time because you want Taco Tuesday to mean something. Or like I said, maybe an outfit or a pair of shoes. I don't wear my Skechers to go do trail work because I need them to stay as my nice pair of shoes. I throw on crappy old shoes that I've already used for hiking and trail work hundreds of times. Whatever it is, we all have something in our lives we reserve for particular occasions. Think, I only use or do X in Y situation. For you, that thing X is holy. It is set apart for a particular use, and to use it outside of that particular circumstance is to cheapen it, to wear it out, or make it unfit for that particular situation again. If you start eating tacos every other day of the week, suddenly Taco Tuesday has lost any sort of meaning. My Skechers aren't my nice shoes anymore. But it is up to us to choose to set ourselves apart. It is very possible to continue in sin even after we have quote-unquote said the prayer and asked Jesus to come into our lives. In every temptation, we face the implicit question, will we set ourselves apart to God or will we make ourselves unfit for special use by returning again to our old ways of thinking and doing? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Notice that Peter does not say, Just as he who called you is holy, so you are holy in all that you do. No. He says, be holy. This is something we need to choose to do. Where I see a lot of people tripping up is in the error that by being holy, by choosing to obey and do the right thing, that is where our salvation comes from. And it's not. Let us be very clear about that. Salvation comes through faith, period. Rather, salvation and holiness are working at the same time. What do I mean by this? Faith comes first. It always does. Once we have faith and believe, salvation comes and the choice for holiness comes. Let's take a look at a few passages here to work this out. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, the passage everyone quotes at you when you start talking about doing good works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. By grace through faith. We'll be talking more about grace next week, but for now, through faith. Also, Romans 4, 3, quoting Genesis 15, 6. What does scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. This passage is talking about the fact that righteousness came before obedience. That righteousness was credited on faith alone because Abraham believed God, not because he had done any act or fulfilled any law. Now this was something that frustrated the heck out of me when I would start talking about trying to obey God and do the right thing. And almost everyone I talked to invariably jumped in with, well, remember, you're not saved by works. And I would scream in my head, I know. Finally, I found a verse for it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Now, if you struggle thinking your right standing with God and your salvation is dependent on what you do, not in whom you believe, that's okay. And for you, you'll need to approach holiness with caution. Remember this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thousands of years before you were born, you had sufficient value in God's eyes to sacrifice his only beloved son. Before you could think, speak, or act, Christ died for you. If you were the only person who had sinned or acted contrary to God's will, he would still have died for you. God's love and your value and worth to him was established long before you were born. There is nothing you can say, think, or do to make his love or your value or worth any more or less to God than what was long ago provided by Jesus' death. If you need to, repeat that to yourself morning, afternoon, and evening until you believe it. Reread the passages we just covered, and there are a ton more. Google them, read them, repeat them, memorize them until it is firmly established in your heart to be true. If, however, or when you have established that, move on. There is a lot more to life in Christ than accepting his death on your behalf. Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 33. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Luke 9.62 Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We could also reread our passage from 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. There are some things, as Jesus indicates in Luke 14, everything, that we will have to give up when we come to him to be his disciple. Jesus even says we need to consider that before we even ask him to come into our hearts. Because if we come to him, pray the prayer, and say we want to be his disciple, thereby putting our hand to the plow, and look back, we aren't fit for the kingdom. That is Jesus' way of saying, be holy. Set yourself apart from the world by rejecting everything about you that ties you to the world. Count up that cost, and if you believe it is worth it that you will be able to pay that cost, then you can set out to build your tower. One final passage to look at concerning faith preceding holiness. Romans 5 verses 7 through 8 and into verse 9. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. 
The Spirit of God lives in you once you have faith, once you believe. In this, we see, too, that no amount of good works without faith in God matters a bit in the face of eternity. Simply being a good person is not enough. We must be righteous before God, through faith, before our works have any value at all. We might also need to talk about the difference between God's love and his pleasure, but we probably don't have time today, so hang on to that and I'll see if we can work out an entire episode just on that. Suffice to say for now that those two things, God's love and pleasure, are as different as righteousness and holiness, and in much the same aspects. It is because of his love that we have been given access to Jesus' righteousness, and it is by our holiness that he is pleased. Jesus did not die because God was pleased with us, and he does not consider us righteous because we are holy. So make sure we don't get those two things confused either. So you may wonder, what's the point of being holy if we're saved by righteousness through Christ? What's the benefit? What do we get out of it? And I'd like to shift our attitude a little, which might be very hard to do, but let's try. For a long time, I thought the problem was too heavy a focus on salvation that it had become more of a numbers game. Just get as many people to accept Christ as possible. Everything you do, everything you say, as long as you can get them to ask Christ into their hearts, your job is done. Now, I don't think that's necessarily it, but maybe more of an attitude that underlies even that focus. And that problem is focusing more on just getting people to not go to hell. Now, that's important, don't get me wrong. But salvation, in light of what we looked at so far, is so much more than just not going to hell It's growing closer to God, becoming who we were made to be, breaking free of the chains of sin that bind us. All of those things are about being holy. Now, as our Romans 5 passage just told us, we can't do that without being saved, without accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. We don't have access or the ability to be holy, to draw closer to God, to do the work we were made for, or to be free from sin. So instead of focusing on, I need to be saved so that I don't burn in hell forever, say, I need to be saved so that I can be holy and all that goes along with that. I can promise you my day-to-day life, the choices I make, the dreams and goals I have and believe God has laid on my heart are not dictated or directed or even influenced by a fear of hell, but so much more by the freedom I've found in Christ and my growing relationship with Christ and God through the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start shifting towards the writing portion, and let's remember that we've had a few talks already around the books that we write as Christians, content we should or should not include, what genres we write and how to handle that, and so on. So for today, I actually want to draw back a little bit instead of diving deeper like we usually do. So let's first observe this point. A thing cannot be partially holy, right? I mean, technically it kind of can, but a thing is either set apart or it's not. If my sketchers are supposed to be my good shoes and I wear them even once for trail work, they're no longer good shoes, even if I continue to then only wear them for their original purpose. As Christians, our whole lives are to be set apart for Christ. He certainly set his entire life on earth apart in obedience to God and with the goal of his death and resurrection for our sins. He didn't have one part of his life dedicated to obedience, but in this single other aspect, he could do what he wanted. It needs to be the same for us. We can't be Christians who also happen to be writers, and we write whatever we want. The words we put on paper and make available to others to read needs to be just as holy, set apart for God's purposes, as anything else we do. As we've touched on previously, this doesn't mean you can only write scripture devotions, and it doesn't even mean writing a book where an altar call at the end feels most appropriate. There's good and bad ways to handle writing a Christian book. Usually, it's in the cliches and tropes of Christian fiction, just as there are issues with adhering too closely to tropes of fantasy or romance, even by the world standards. As we said a couple weeks ago, there will still be a market for those types of books, 
where everyone is good, finds Jesus at the end, and blatantly calls out good and bad attitudes and actions, and probably contains a little preaching. As always, define your audience and write to them. If that's the book you want to write, do it. Plenty of people will read it. But when I think about this idea, I think of 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The glaring assumption in this verse is that you will be displaying hope for people to see. I see so many people today who call themselves out as Christians who are constantly displaying despair. Sometimes we get so lost in the effort to empathize and show that you don't have to be perfect to be a Christian that we erase any difference between having the joy and hope of the Lord and not having it, that being a Christian almost appears meaningless. We're so afraid of having a holier-than-thou attitude. And can I pause just a minute here? Given what we just talked about, shouldn't we as followers of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, be holier than those who are not? Holiness and humility go hand in hand. Pride, in contrast, is not holiness. So if you're coming across as proud, you're not being holy. Pride rests in the self, while holiness is devoting yourself to God. But if we're no less free from sin or the weight of this world than anyone else, we've missed it, plain and simple. We've nullified the work Christ did on the cross for us and the power made available in the Holy Spirit. If what we write contains not a hint of the hope we have or the presence of the kingdom of God on earth, if our books are indistinguishable from the rest of the world in tone or themes, we have missed it. I feel pretty safe in making the blanket statement that those sorts of books are not what God would have us write. As we were talking about, though, this doesn't mean writing only Sunday school approved books. If that's what you want to write, that's great, do it, and if God has called you to it, you'll be blessed. But Jesus came to call the unrighteous to repentance, right? So he had to be someone who could be known as someone you could invite to your house for dinner. And as we talked about in an earlier episode, even using language in your book that you may not use in person, I think, is acceptable provided you have a clear purpose of reaching certain people. The point of doing such a thing is not to be edgy or relevant or to help fit in with other writers in your genre. Rather, it should be because the character demands it. But when I think about this, I'm thinking more along the lines of the saying, no one is offended by the absence of language, which I think is generally true. The problem arises when the tough biker gang leader or serial murderer says, oh darn, because you're trying to make your book clean. Now, if you've worked this into his or her character, for whatever reason, maybe a mother or father figure or someone else they truly admire or want to respect, you've worked in a sincere effort to curb their cussing, that can work. But be careful that this isn't every dark or evil character you create. By the second or third book, if you keep excusing why your characters use replacement words instead of curse words, readers are going to notice. And if they're an audience that you're trying to reach that appreciates a good curse word, they're going to be turned off. It's not the absence of cursing that's offending them, but you're calling too much attention to the absence of cursing. So it's okay to have dark and evil characters. They do exist in the real world, and we pray for them, but we can't force them to change. By erasing all sign of them in our books, we're creating an inauthentic world and one that is going to limit our audience primarily to the very young or the very ascetic or those who want to put nothing in front of themselves that looks too graphically like sin. Again, there's nothing wrong with those audiences, but you need to recognize the reality of the choices that we make as writers. So all those Sunday school approved books are a little more obviously holy, set apart for God, primarily to encourage those already of the faith. But even darker or more worldly-seeming books can still be holy, even without having an altar call or coming to Jesus moment for the character. 
It's enough, I believe, to develop a theme that at least shakes people from the rut they may be in, or the rut that they're thinking is in. As long as we shake them from their bias, then they'll be forced to settle on a new way of thinking, and that's where God can move in and nudge them closer to Christ. I think we see Jesus do this several times in the Gospels, when someone comes up to him and addresses him a certain way, it almost seems like Jesus responds to a whole different thing, as if he ignored what the person said. I think of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And we could look at Jesus and say, what on earth does that have to do with what Nicodemus just said? Were you even listening? But I think Jesus was, not to Nicodemus' words, but to his thoughts. Nicodemus, as part of the ruling council, would have the assumption that the laws of Moses were the way to salvation. But look at what else he says. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. But Jesus was so much more than a teacher. He was God. So Nicodemus thinks he can see the kingdom of God because he acknowledges Jesus' miracles. But Jesus says, no, you can't see the kingdom yet until you do this thing, be born again. And that as we continue to read, we see Nicodemus has no inkling of what Jesus is even talking about, much less how to do it. There's people like that everywhere, from the darkest sinner to the most enlightened Christian, who has some presupposition or assumption that is false, even if only slightly, that Jesus needs to come in and shake them free of it. What our writing needs to do, at a bare minimum, is challenge one or several of those false beliefs. We can do that for Christians and non-Christians, whoever we choose and feel called to address. Once you've challenged it, it's up to you to offer a solution. The more you offer, though, and the more blatantly you do it, you will likely be limiting your audience more and more to Christians, who are, by and large, looking for such solutions. But the more a reader considers themselves a free thinker, the more they will push back against your attempt to teach them what you think they should know. Now, those are some broad assumptions that are not categorically true, I'm just trying to give you a broad audience level insight into what you should expect. Well, I think that's going to be all for me for this week. Come back next week as we dive into the idea of grace and see if we need to start flipping some of those assumptions on their heads as well. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. Keep writing.